0: Welcome to Episode 8 of How We Win. The run-up to the 2020 election is going to be riveting, and every week we'll share these stories from the field. All
1: over the country, ordinary people are doing extraordinary things. We'll give you the tools that you need to jump in and make a difference right now.
0: Action is the best antidote to anxiety. Mm -hmm. The clock is ticking, and we want you to join the party.
1: Today, we're joined by powerhouse activist and organizer Cecile Richards. President of Planned Parenthood from 2006 to 2018, she recently co-founded Supermajority, a new women's advocacy organization dedicated to getting more women elected to office. We caught up with Cecile in Las Vegas at the end of Supermajority's cross-country bus tour.
0: Then we'll hear about what one volunteer is doing to help us win. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And, and this, this is, is how we went. Hey, dude. Hey, what'd you do this weekend?
1: I went to a puppy reunion.
0: A puppy reunion? Yeah. That sounds adorable. It that was, sounds like the best reunion ever. It was pretty, pretty cute. But are the puppies all grown now?
1: Uh, the puppies are pretty much grown, but still have puppy energy. And then afterwards, I was covered in dog hair and went to a organizing event because can't stop, won't
0: stop. Nice. What did you do? I was in Arizona. I was in Phoenix. Oh. At a uh, DNC Western conference.
1: Oh, do you have any inside information?
0: I have a little bit of inside information in that These Western DNC members are fired up, and they are looking at all kinds of organizations to work with. Mm -hmm. I was there talking about Swing Left, and they're really excited about working with grassroots organizations like Swing Left. Yeah. And for the most part, these are like... Long time party activists right. who know what they're doing but also uh, are open to new ideas because the stakes are so high. So it was pretty cool. It was an exciting conference.
1: That is very cool. The organizing event that I was at was for people who wanted to get involved but needed to find a home for their activism. So it seems like, you know, we're a little over a year out from election 2020. And people are already getting engaged, which is so exciting.
0: Yeah, yeah. And um, the bright, shiny thing that's going on, there's a lot of testimony happening this week. I said a couple of weeks ago it was impeachment week, but it feels like maybe it's impeachment.
1: Oh, it's going to be month. impeachment year. It, it's just going to be all impeachment all the time for a while now. Um, but we know the House impeachment inquiry is officially underway hearing some interesting testimony.
0: It's happening really fast. And the whistleblowers, plural, are are coming forward.
1: The first actual White House official has testified. And from that, we know how concerned John Bolton was before this phone call to Ukraine even happened.
0: You know who's going to be the hero of the day?
1: Please don't say John Bolton. It's going to be John Bolton's
0: mustache, specifically his mustache, not him as a person because he's still a garbage person, but his mustache (laughs) is looking, you know, pretty heroic right now.
1: Well, mustaches are in right now. John Bolton, I think, had his well before that, but um, what his mustache has told us is that Rudy Giuliani is a real thug. We'll see where that goes. I'm sure there are going to be more things revealed about all of the working relationship that Bolton had with Giuliani and Mulvaney and everybody. But next up to testify that we're going to be keeping a very close eye on is Gordon Sondland.
0: Yes. He was blocked initially by the administration from testifying and now is coming forward. And they're really hearing serious testimony. And it's been long. I mean, uh, Fiona Hill, who was in yesterday, uh, was testifying for like 10 hours straight. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's a lot of information being disseminated and we're going to hear it at some point, but I'm glad they're doing it seriously behind closed doors and not dragging myself and my wife through this onslaught of 24 hour testimony which we would be watching and it would end our life as we know it
1: <laughs> yeah so we're, we'll get the highlights hopefully Sondland will actually testify this time so we'll be looking for that on Thursday um, and before we move on let's not forget that Steve loves John Poulton
0: <laughs> I don't I don't I think I've made it clear in the past he's a garbage person but
1: Um, It's kind of a very depressing comedy of errors with the impeachment stuff, but far more serious is what's happening in Syria. The U.S. has pulled more U.S. troops from the area. Russia is stepping in to fill the void. And uh, Turkey is terrifying everyone.
0: Of course, the Middle East has always been complicated. It's it's not like it's been an easy situation that any of our leaders have ever been able to handle particularly well. But in this case, uh, there was somewhat a bit of stability until Trump unilaterally had a conversation with Erdogan and decided to to pull forces and basically leave an open door for him to invade Syria. Mm
1: -hmm. It's really important for people to stay up on this. This is how we hold this administration accountable by being informed and being smart. And they are going to say things that are misleading. They're primarily going to tweet things that are very misleading. But this is the time where you focus and where you get your information from multiple and reputable sources.
0: Right. And also – this is not playing well for the Republicans in the Senate. They um, mm-hmm. He is not getting the general kind of blanket support that he usually does from Republicans. So it'll be interesting to watch uh, how this influences their view of him as we go into these impeachment proceedings in the Senate as well.
1: Yeah, and I think that voters seem like in general they're frustrated even with the Republicans who have spoken up and said – What we've done to the Kurds, what's happening in Syria is wrong right now. They're not specifically calling Trump out. They're not willing to say Donald Trump is wrong on this issue. They're saying, you know, this administration is making some mistakes, but we know who's who's responsible for those mistakes. So even for those who are somewhat standing up. There, the the voters are going to have to take them to
0: task in November. It's because at this point, Donald Trump is a cult leader, and these mm-hmm. are his cult followers. And like you said, we've got to vote them all out.
1: Yeah, yeah. Moving to shift gears just a little bit, we want to remind everybody that our UAW brothers and sisters are still on strike. They've been on strike for over a month now, which is a very long time to be out of work. But when you're fighting for health care and wages and fair treatment, you got to do the hard work for it.
0: That's right. Mm -hmm. 50,000 workers are still on strike right now. So please amplify their posts. We're going to post links on our page for you to share. Mm -hmm. This is Something when you have this crazy news cycle going on with the impeachment, with Syria and Turkey and all that, that uh, people aren't paying attention to. And uh, and the way we support them is by drawing attention to it, making sure that we put pressure on GM and support the workers. So right. please amplify this.
1: Yes, yes. T- yeah. to- to-do list.
0: Our to-do list. Our
1: to-do list, amplify the UAW strike on social media and – Virginia. Virginia, which is the election weeks away. Is it three weeks? Three three weeks, three weeks away. Mm-hmm. We need to flip two seats in the House of Delegates and two seats in the, the state Senate and hold on to all the seats that Democrats have already to take over both parts of the state legislature there. And we have the support. From voters, Mm -hmm. but those voters actually have to show up and go to the polls.
0: They have to show up. It's all about turnout. You know, we've talked in previous episodes about the difference between the midterm elections where we had to convince people to show up and vote in the midterms Mm -hmm. because historically they – don't. And the presidential, where actually close to 90% of registered voters do show up and vote, this is less than a midterm. It's an off-year election that that people really aren't paying attention to. Mm -hmm. So turnout is key in this election. And what that also means is every person that you talk to, every voter that you reach, that you get to the poll, is going to have an outsized impact. It's going to be huge because there's going to be a low turnout. If we can get more Democrats to show up, then we can really, win we can take back the majority and then we can pass the era we are one state away mm. from putting the equal rights amendment on our constitution since 1972 i believe is when we started fighting for this and it hasn't happened yet we can do it if we okay. take back the majority
1: so um if you're within driving distance of virginia or in virginia please sign up for a shift to knock on doors in the next few weeks
0: Go to swingleft.org slash Virginia, and we have all of the races that we're working on. There's 20 of them, I believe. You can find something close to you. You can adopt a specific candidate. You can work on all of them. But we have phone banks up. We have shifts up. Now is time. It's all hands on deck. We're entering into GOTV for Virginia. And also, you can speak to this, too, um, how important this is nationally to show where our activist base is right now.
1: Oh, my gosh. So important. And, you know, just a reminder that uh, for for both sides, we could make this a warning shot across the bow to Republicans that we're coming and also let Democratic voters in places like Virginia, which... Might go either way next year to say, hey, there's a lot of people like you out there. We're with you. Let's vote. Let's vote together. Let's make a difference.
0: All right. We did another interview while we were in Las Vegas with Cecile Richards, who she just was so powerful. And she walked into that uh, little dressing room we had set up to do the podcast. Mm -hmm. And she's just got such presence.
1: Yeah. She called you Dude, though. So. She <laughs> She did. was like, is this a dude who's going to help us get things done? Just, she's from Texas. She's so. from Texas. She has an incredible background in organizing and campaigns and just a deep knowledge and experience of how you stick with things when you really believe in them, but you're up against something really tough.
0: Right. Her book is fantastic. It's called Make Trouble, and it's about her journey as an activist. And the stuff she did even just in college right. was so impressive. And she, Anyway, so I recommend everyone check out that book. It's really she's inspiring. She's got some
1: stories to
0: tell. She does. And she's going to tell us some. Yeah.
1: We're joined by Cecile Richards, an organizer, activist, powerhouse. She is Of Co founder of Supermajority, a new women's advocacy group. And she was president of Planned Parenthood from 2006 to 2018. Cecile Richards, thank you so much for talking to us. Absolutely. Uh, You're at the final stop of a 16 city bus tour for the Supermajority Education Fund. Can you tell us about Supermajority and the bus tour?
2: Sure. So, Supermajority, we launched back in uh, the end of April with uh, my co founders. Alicia Garza, one of the mm-hmm. one of the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement, Ai Jen Poo, who has organized domestic workers for her entire life, Jess Morales um, and Catherine Granger and Deirdre Schiefling, really because we believe there's this incredible moment for women that every every day I think each of us gets stopped by someone who says, "Okay, I'm not sure what to do." Right. To change things in this country, but I want to be part of it. So we launched Supermajority, and we've been doing um, basically an organizing tour on a bus, is the way I think about it. We started with Stacey Abrams in Atlanta, Georgia, Amazing. which was yeah, what a fabulous um, sort of send off because one of, of course, Stacey's life's work um, has not only been serving in office, but also ensuring the right of people to vote. And we know in this country that women, women of color, women with low incomes, have the most um, difficulty accessing the voting box, be, you know, because of all the barriers that the states put put in front of them. So anyway, we've been on this wild tour. You know, we <laughs> left Atlanta, rolled into Birmingham, Alabama, went through Florida, on up through Virginia, and then really all the way through the Midwest, um, and ending up today in Las Vegas, Nevada. Mm-hmm. The important part, or the additional important part of this, is we've been meeting up with presidential candidates on the road. Mm-hmm. So we um, we were with Pete Buttigieg in South Carolina, with Julian Castro and Beto O'Rourke in Austin, and then today, sort of the grand finale, of course, is being here with Senator Elizabeth Warren and Senator Kamala Harris. Wonderful. Yeah, this is
1: such an exciting tour. <laughs> and you talked about founding Supermajority not that long ago, and you really picked an interesting time. In how women are being perceived in the U.S. right now, can you talk a little bit about why you felt that the timing was right?
2: Well, I you know I had spent the last decade or more, 12 years I guess, at Planned Parenthood, and we had done a lot of work to invest in in young women, in young women of color, becoming activists, not just patients, but also then advocating for their rights, and. It occurred to me, doing all that work, even though we were really successful, I think, in building a, a, a incredible cadre of a movement for reproductive rights, that there were all these other issues that women cared about as well, right. and we weren't actually engaging as much as we could. Uh, and that's what I found on the road. I mean, look, we saw the women's march, the largest marches mm-hmm. in recorded history. We saw women, uh, you know, rushing to town hall meetings to defend access to Planned Parenthood and the Affordable Care Act as i like to point out, even though everyone said we couldn't win, Paul Ryan, the speaker, is now retired and Planned Parenthood's doors are still open. Right. I think a real demonstration of why organizing matters. And then every issue, whether it's public education, whether it is family separation, women have been at the forefront. For me, my concern is if women march and write their members of Congress and rally and don't vote, we really won't have you know, in a way completed the circle, Mm -hmm. and the idea of supermajority is with so many women just kind of awakening into this moment of activism, how do we ensure that they have the community they need, the support, the tools, sometimes just the basic civic education, so that they can be um, active in not only advocating for things they care about, but also participating in the election. Look, it's, it's not lost on anyone that next fall in 2020 will be the 100th anniversary of women beginning to get the suffrage uh, in this country. I think it's always important to, re- to remember, for those who don't haven't studied our history, that it was only white women that right. were afforded the right to vote. It took decades more for women of color to get the same right. Uh, of course, women of color now are some of the most reliable voters and progressive voters in the country, if not the most. What would be so exciting to me and I think to millions of other women is to think that next fall we could run the largest woman-to-woman voter turnout program in the country mm. on the uh, on the centennial of the suffrage and really demonstrate the supermajority that women are.
0: That would also be exciting to me, by uh, the way. I, hey, we're not leaving <laughs> anyone out. No, I, yeah.
2: no, I think that's, you know, it's interesting because we just finished a, a big national poll uh, and One of the overriding themes of that is there are no more women's issues and Mm -hmm. that how important it is, I think for a lot of women, particularly if you watch the presidential debates now where women feel like we're kind of, other than at least we've now got some representation on the debate stage, Mm -hmm. but the issues that, that women are most concerned about are largely absent in that debate and how exciting it would be that if not only women, but the issues that we think about, Care about, uh, work on every day. We're not considered um, a special interest, but actually considered a majoritarian interest. Right. And and look, we've been interested like it super majority. We've had tens of thousands of people join, and a third of them are folks who do not use she/her pronouns. Mm-hmm. So a lot of allies uh, and. That is important too, because I don't think anyone, um, whether it's civil rights, whether it's LGBTQ rights, whether it's um, reproductive justice, these are not issues that we should, you know, say it's only one group's responsibility to deal but with human
0: rights. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I want to ask you more about how everyone mm. can get involved. Sure. But, but first, I want to just go back because your, I mean, to say your family is, uh, you know, political would be a <laughs> gross understatement. Your mother, Ann Richards, was the Democratic governor of Texas, of course. Your father was an attorney for civil rights uh, labor. In your book, you describe your household, your childhood home, as uh, the local gathering place for misfits and Mm rabble-rousers, right? What were some of your favorite earliest memories of activism, getting involved?
2: Well, I think one thing which is actually probably comparable to some Families' experience right now is that we spent all our time protesting and marching. I mean, I, I grew up in Dallas, Texas, and my parents were against everything. So, <laughs> hey, did you really, you know, just even um, barbecue. You know, oh, I, well, of course, I became a vegetarian early life. Yeah. That was my first act Fair of rebellion. But, um, <laughs> no, no, I remember, and I remember going. My mother dragging us to the local A um, and P grocery store, where where we spent an enormous amount of time and money, uh, demanding to see the uh, the union label on the head lettuce because of Course, right. the farm workers in Texas were organizing. And so it With was grapes there was no household. place, yeah, there was no place you could go where my parents weren't trying to make a point or maybe make a stand. And mm-hmm. that is the exciting thing right now is I think, you know, w- mothers particularly come up to me and say, I don't know what to do and how to teach my kids. I said, look, your kids learn not from what you tell them. It's from how what they see you do and how you spend your time. So if you're going to a march, if you're going to a town hall meeting, it was great to see kids here today with Senator Warren. Show them that these are the things that are important in your lives, and that will completely, um, I think, influence the way they see the world. Um, and I was just, look, I was born under a lucky start. If you can only imagine having Ann Richards as a mom, it made you tough. And if you're in Texas, and you were progressive in Texas, you didn't get anything without a fight. And I feel like she... Um, She taught us that. My dad, who's still practicing law in Texas, uh, uh, is one of the unrepentant liberals uh, of that state. And that to me was a very, it was a very charmed upbringing.
0: My dad is a, one of the few Democrats that came out of Oklahoma.
2: There we go. And, and that'll make you tough. Ended up in D.C. <laughs> yes. Yeah,
0: yeah. So um,
2: I used to go to I used to go to Oklahoma to feel better. I have to say, <laughs> <laughs> oh, <that's laughs> but we that's share, fair. I yeah. mean, just I, we do share. Uh, all, yeah, a lot you of the Austin. same challenges. <laughs> yeah. Well, and of course, everyone's see. But you know, the fascinating thing about Texas, I was just back there because we, you know, had these uh, the, this uh, supermajority organizing, training, and then also meeting with the presidentials. You know, everyone goes. Is Texas a blue state, a red state, a purple state? I think what I saw see in Texas right now is Texas is just a state in the in the middle of the most dynamic change, and so much of it is being led by women and women of color. Hmm. Um, you know, there's five really competitive congressional races in Texas there're women in every single one of them mm-hmm. you know including your former um, you know Woody Davis who we were talking about earlier uh, you know running for Congress uh, John Cornyn, who's running for re-election uh, f- I think there's now four there are four women running against him in, in the primary uh-huh. so it yeah. is an exciting place to see a whole generational change of women who aren't waiting their turn. You know, we're not waiting to kind of get through the pecking order of who gets chosen to be candidates. They're just jumping in. Yeah. You're very familiar with
1: political campaigns. You started working on them at a very early age. How have you seen them change as women have become more involved and outspoken in them?
2: Well, first of all, I would say women have always been involved. In fact, my mother used to joke. She said, "You know, the, the real side, because women were always the volunteers in mm-hmm. campaigns." Um, and it, it wasn't until much later in my mother's life that she that she actually even considered, after we were all grown, considered running for office herself. Mm-hmm. She used to joke that you know you could really tell who was the woman most most important by the length of her, her, her the phone cord that she had at the at the campaign <laughs> office because that means she could really really get around. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think women have always been. The ground troops, Mm -hmm. um, and they are still. Mm -hmm. The exciting thing is now women are looking around and particularly because of all the young women who've come into Congress, young women of color who are demystifying what it's about and showing, you know, I was with Lauren Underwood the other day, the new congresswoman from Illinois, and that's where, you know, after being in a room full of women and listening to Lauren Underwood, every single one of them thought they could be in Congress. And that, to me, is what's exciting, is just um, pulling back the curtain and yeah. Yeah. and also saying to women, don't wait your turn. Start before you're ready. Wow.
0: Are volunteers doing the same things on campaigns that uh, they did when you— I mean, you started when you were, uh, like, 16 mm-hmm. working on campaigns? I, I mean,
2: Look, I think some of the tactics have changed, but in terms of women being—really uh, being the activists, whether it's door knocking, whether it's texting now, whether it's phone banking, I do think that, look, women are the majority, particularly in the Democratic Party, women have always been the majority of voters and activists. Right now, women voting in historic numbers, and so I do think the the relationship between women, women using those kind of connections with their peers to get them involved in politics, is something that is exciting and and wonderful uh, to see more of. But the other thing Mm -hmm. is, we see we're seeing women running campaigns now. Mm -hmm. You know, it was great to be with Julian Castro the other day, and you know, meet his campaign director, um, a really really talented uh, young woman, uh, and. Up and down these national campaigns, I think there's a recognition that women can be in charge and can lead. Uh, and I hope that this is, I hope this is now becomes the new normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I think we still recognize that for women candidates, and particularly presidential candidates, there's a double standard. But I love the fact that now there's not just like the archetypal woman running for office. When mom ran, you know she had all these rules. You know, never change your hairstyle. You know, all these things you had to be. And I look at the look at the women running for Congress, running for president. Each one of them is unique. They bring their different skills and attributes and leadership styles. And that is, you know, that to me is really exciting. It is.
1: Moving on to your most recent work, you Mm -hmm. founded America Votes, you were deputy chief of staff for Nancy Pelosi, and you spent 12 years leading Planned Parenthood. And you saw a lot of major victories and also some devastating setbacks in the reproductive rights movement. Can you talk about what you learned about resiliency and continuing to do this work, even after those setbacks?
2: Well, I mean, there's so many things I learned, uh, and I write about a lot of them in my book because I just felt like I've got to get this down on paper. Yeah. Uh, I guess the two, two things that come to mind, one is you have to celebrate the small victories. And I, you know, we went through a very tough period where Congress was trying to uh, take away federal funding for Planned Parenthood, literally what we, you know, defunding Planned Parenthood, which would mean so many people would lose health care, and it was the odds were completely against us. Um, you know, we had obviously Republicans had control of the Congress, we had uh, Republicans control the White House. In fact, I remember that's what Jared Kushner said to me. He said, "We control everything now. You, all, you know, you
0: all basically don't have a chance." I heard that part um, in yeah. your book. You were reading it to me by the way. I was listening to the book on oh, were? Really? Okay. It's <laughs> <Yeah. Yeah>. um, <laughs> <I'm> so bizarre. <laughs> but I
2: think the import- so two things coming out of that, one was uh, I I figured out actually a friend of mine out of the environmental movement uh, said to me, "You can't you can't fight the completely every day without having, you know, recognizing the achievements. And he said, just figure out how many people you serve every day. Mm-hmm. And so I, I kind of did the calculation. It was like 5,892 or something at Planned Parenthood. Mm-hmm. And so I thought every single day that our doors stayed open, that many people got health care. And a lot of them wouldn't get it as a, otherwise. And that helps you keep going, It's just recognize you don't know what's going to happen to the end. But if you can do that each day... Then, then that's actually changed people's lives. And the other thing I learned out of that fight was um, that you really only win when you never give up. And that was, of course, that, that historic evening or night, at that point it was like in the morning, uh, in Congress, when we didn't have the votes to to block the defunding of Planned Parenthood and the overturning of the Affordable Care Act, I remember seeing Senator P- Patty Murray a couple of hours before. She said, "Cecile, I just don't know what we're going to do. We just we just do not have the votes." And we just agreed. We just had to keep fighting. And of course, that was the night that John McCain made his mm-hmm. famous you know, thumbs, thumbs down sign. Yeah. And that would you know, people give John McCain a lot of credit, Senator McCain, and of course, it was it was a really important thing he did. But his historic vote um, wouldn't have been possible without people not giving up for so many months and convincing people to, to, to hang in there. So I guess those are my two lessons. You win if you don't give up, <laughs> and you have to celebrate the victories as you go. Very good advice that I think a lot of our frustrated <laughs> volunteers will
1: appreciate. Right. Um, y- Thank you for the sort of behind the scenes look at at what's going on on Capitol Hill that's really helpful to hear about. I want to talk a little bit about the last election mm-hmm. when women in 2016 um, 53% of women elected Donald Trump.
2: Mm-hmm. What do you think is going to be well I don't I, what do you think is going to be different next year? I mean, it's hard. I think that was such a unique election. And without, I mean, I guess I don't really look backwards so much as look forward. I do think you have to also put 2016 up against 2018, where we actually saw Mm -hmm. the reaction Mm -hmm. that, I mean, and it was women, you know, whether it was, you know, African-American women in Alabama or it was suburban women in Virginia or all across the map, it was women who... Ran in historic numbers, turned out in historic numbers, and completely changed um, the dynamics, not only in Congress, but in state legislatures. I mean, all of these states that we've been traveling through on this supermajority bus tour, there were women elected to the state house, uh, sometimes to governor. We're looking at Michigan, which it completely changed. So I think women are now recognizing that they do have power mm-hmm. if they use it. Uh, but, you know, nothing is given. And I'm, you know, it's interesting people say, like, they look at things and they just think they just happen, that they're just trends. Most things happen, if good things happen, it's because people actually put in the hard work to do it. And that is exactly why I'm focused right now with Supermajority, with iGen and Alicia and Jess and others, is that women will be the majority of voters in 2020. We always are. Women, particularly if we organize across issues, across racial backgrounds, across geography, uh, generation, when we come together, we can do anything. We are unstoppable. And that's the whole conceit of supermajority. And the other piece of this is, it's not just, as we know, you know, elections, really the work starts the day after the election. So it, and one of the reasons we we've, we've released what we're calling our majority rules is what is it we actually want government to do to make women more equal and have more opportunity, or at least equal opportunity? Because as we know, just electing more women to office or just getting more women to vote, if we don't actually do it in service of values, mm-hmm. it's a pretty empty proposition. And, and look, a lot of women on the road have told me, you know, things weren't that great for women and women of color before Donald Trump was elected to the White House. So we have to have aspirations that are higher than simply resisting, right? I think the the conversation that we have at Supermajority all the time is, what if you imagined the world that you wanted to live in, and then go build that? Go build that, and that mm-hmm. is really, I hope, what we're what we're doing. And that that takes all of us, and it takes allies, mm-hmm. uh, to say, you know, that would be good for everybody. And. And to recognize, too, that the things we we really are fighting for and and believe in, whether it's equal access uh, at the workplace, whether it's being able to live free of sexual assault and harassment and have people listen to us uh, when our stories are told, whether it's being able to access health care that's affordable for our families, uh, for our loved ones, being able to make our own decisions about our bodies. These are super majoritarian values. Mm -hmm. These are not Democratic values or Republican values. These are values that transcend party, and that's why we're doing this work. And I think it's an exciting time.
0: So, how can I help as a as a, as a male cis as a dude, dude, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. You know, yeah. Like, how can how can dudes like yourself. me uh, be good advocates and allies? So,
2: one is you know sign up to for supermajority just so you get the information because we're sending out you know we're we're sending out like calls to action, information you can use, and think about ways in which you can actually. Stand up for other folks. And this is—it's interesting. We were just in this conversation with Senator Warren, and we're talking about, you know, the real frustration about the dismissal of trans people in this country, of the fact that what should be considered and is a a national epidemic of uh, trans uh, women of color being murdered— This should not be an issue that the trans community has to fight on all their own. And so I think, I guess I'd like to call in folks on every issue and say, make it your issue. Make equal pay your issue. Make standing up for folks who raise the issue of sexual harassment, sexual assault, your issue. That, to me, is when change happens. It's when the people that are most affected by these problems and, and the real inequities in society are joined by folks who recognize um, that an injury to one is an injury to all, and that we can only change America if, in fact, we, um, we that we stand together. And, and I think there's a lot of room for that. It was, I mean, obviously great to see so many um, fathers and brothers and uncles and sons march at the Women's March. Mm-hmm. Um, but we need to keep that going, and it'll make you feel good too. It'll um, it does. it'll make the world better.
0: <laughs> it <does>. So welcome, <laughs> welcome in. <laughs> Thank you. I'm happy to be a part of it. Yeah. Yeah. fantastic. Okay, so for everybody, not just the dudes, but um, right. everyone, what are the best ways to make trouble right now?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and I like <laughs> I like to think like make good trouble, right. as Congressman John Lewis so importantly says. That's to a good us. distinction. Yeah, <laughs> it is. I'm um, not making trouble for the sake of it, but actually standing up for when you see something that's an injustice to stand up for it. I think that's what has been so important in it seems obviously, like
0: not trouble, but our responsibility as citizens.
2: Right. Well, I think sometimes, you know, and this is what I found early on and when I was an organizer, is that if something seems wrong um Oftentimes, and you feel like something's wrong. If you say something, it's amazing the number of people mm-hmm. who will go, "Wow, I'm I'm glad you said that because yeah. I was kind of thinking the same thing." I think we've seen that with family separation issues of people you know, rushing out because actually women in large part stood at the border and said, this is wrong. We are better than this. I think the outrage that is coming out over criminal justice, you know, the the inequity in the criminal justice system. Uh, I remember a young mother in Wisconsin, in rural Wisconsin, saying to me, I I know I have two young children. I can't stand by anymore and watch young black men being murdered. Um, And that to me is when you begin to actually stand up and speak out, it's how change happens. Uh, I remember when the the young people from March for Our Lives uh, organized the, the, the march in Washington and I was walking down the street and I met a young woman who she wanted to stop and take a picture or something. And I asked her where she's from, and she was from suburban Philly, and she was a junior high school student. And she mm. said, "You know, I, I, I said, well, how did you get involved?" And she said, "Well, when the first um, when the first walkout happened, I was the only person in my school." That walked out and she said but then a friend of mine she came out with me and we both got suspended <laughs> but here we are today and, sh- and I said well how did it feel to you and she said well actually um, after the two of us did that and we went back to school uh, whatever the next day so many of my fellow students came up to me and said next time I'm going out with you yeah. and that to me is what organizing is about it is of saying do the right thing make good trouble question authority Don't wait to be asked, and if we do that, and I feel like every person in this country just does a little more, then we actually, we can change things, and um, so I hope that everyone listening and everyone, you know, who's part of Swing Left, they are making um, change and making trouble, and we just need to do it more together, Um, and that is kind of the idea of supermajority, is that we don't need to be put by the side, we don't, you know, sort of say, wait your turn, this is our chance to change the future.
1: Final question that we ask all of our guests okay. is, um, what gives you the most hope
2: for the future? Uh, definitely young people. And it was actually, we were, we were in Denver a couple of days ago for one of the Stops on the Bus tour. And we had a bunch of young women there from Girls, Inc. And there was one young woman who was 10 years old, mm-hmm. Ailea and she was actually explaining to me i said well what do you do and she said oh i am learning how to program brains of robots and went into this long explanation of what okay. she i mean <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly i felt like okay <laughs> you i am th- <laughs> um, and but she she's just one example of this extraordinary new generation mm-hmm. of young people and particularly young women they just don't see the barriers and i hope that we can be here to support them and i always say to people if you're a, if you have an organization and look around the table. And if there aren't young people at the table, you're not doing your job um, Mm -hmm. because they are looking for voice. They're looking for opportunity and they're our best hope for change. And I'll close with this last, like one of my favorite statistics. There's about 4 million young people that turn 18 every year on average. And so if you think back at 2016 and just do the math by 2020, there'll be about 16 million young people who couldn't vote then and can vote in 2020. And, um, as we know, that was a presidential election decided by 77,000 votes in three states. So um, invest in young people.
0: My daughter's one of those who's turning 18. <laughs> Excellent. What <laughs> an exciting gets, time to, to be. She gets to vote.
2: Yeah. Good, yeah. For, good for her. No, and, yeah. uh, and as we know, if young people vote three times in a row, they become lifelong voters. And yeah. that's what we need to really make this a true democracy. Yeah. So...
0: Well, Seal, thank you so much for sitting down, and I mean, your schedule couldn't be crazier. So we really, really appreciate it. Excellent to
2: get to see you again, (laughs) and (laughs) and thanks for all the work that Swing Left does, and for all the work that we're all going to do together to um, to build the country we deserve for everyone.
0: Before we go, we want to share an email we got from a volunteer telling her story and some of the stuff that she did. Um, Maureen from Santa Clara, California. Go,
1: Maureen, go. The
0: powerhouse organizers. I got to say, the Northern California powerhouse. I mean, we're here in Southern California. NorCal, they are some fierce volunteers and organizers up there. They know how to make stuff happen.
1: I wonder if there are organizers in any other parts of the country that want to weigh in and, and tell us what their powerhouse situation is like.
0: We want to encourage everyone to share what they're doing, and let's make it a friendly competition. Yeah, let's see who who is going to make a bigger impact. I think it's SoCal, but we'll find out anyway. They're biased. Uh, I want to read you guys um, her email. Okay. I organized a big postcard letter-writing campaign last year using both postcards to voters and Vote Forward. Good resources. Right? My friends and I worked for four months and wrote over 3,700 postcards and letters to many key states across the country. Holy moly. I hosted weekly Take Back Tuesdays at my home. I like the way it alliterated, she said. I love alliteration. And also passed out care packages to friends who couldn't come. Nothing fancy, a Ziploc bag with stamped postcards, the script, and addresses. Oh,
1: she gave them no excuses. That's right.
0: It felt great, except when some of our favorites didn't win, but at least we knew we did all we could. Mm. It was the perfect way to channel the energy in massively Democratic-dominated Silicon Valley and spread it to areas that needed some help. Although many of us also donated to campaigns, writing to fellow Democrats felt more personal and impactful. If I can do this as a busy mom with three young kids, then anyone can gather a few friends and work together to make a difference. I inspired a lot of people to write and to host writing parties themselves, and that ripple effect felt fabulous. Maureen, I have goosebumps. (laughs) Yeah. I've recently restarted my Take Back Tuesdays, and I wanted to share today's reminder email with you below. I started it with a quote from Ethan's podcast.
1: Oh, well done, Ethan.
0: (laughs) Yes. This is what happens when former English majors get pissed off. We write, Thank you again so very much. I know your podcast will reach many people and inspire them to get involved. This is absolutely essential for all the wins we need in 2020. So hang in there, get enough sleep, and drink your green smoothies. We need your energy for the next 14 months. Take care. Maureen, Santa Clara, California.
1: What a lovely email, an incredible thing that Maureen is doing for Democrats across the country. Thank you, Maureen.
0: Thank you so much, Maureen. Uh, and our final message, be like Maureen. Thank you for joining us today and for stepping up and taking action like Maureen. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved.
1: We want to hear from you and we want your story, your stories of activism and how you're engaging people. Send us a note or even record yourself and email it to podcasts at swingleft.org.
0: Thanks to all of our subscribers. If you aren't a subscriber yet, what are you waiting for? Please do subscribe and rate on Apple or wherever else you get your pods.
1: Share us with your friends and family and help us build this megaphone for the resistance. Use the hashtag HowWeWin2020, share our page at swingleft.org slash podcasts, and don't forget to sign up to volunteer.
0: Next Wednesday, we'll be talking about organizing young people with two of the Parkland students and founders of March for Our Lives. These young activists are just amazing, and you won't want to miss it. We'll talk to you then.